The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. Hello, man. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, like Josh said, I'm Sam. I'm one of the pastoral residents here. Typically, I get the opportunity to, to serve you all by, by leading you in worship. Um, our pastors have been very, very gracious to share a lot of their responsibilities, and um, Pastor Kevin has been very gracious to let me share, uh, share the load and, and the responsibility of leading you all in worship through song, but now I get to lead you all in worship uh, through the proclamation of God's Word. It's, this is literally one of the most uh, incredible things uh, gifts for me. I, I enjoy doing this more than just about anything else. And so um, let me tell you why I picked the passage uh, that, that I picked to preach from. Um, it's 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 16 through 21, by the way. So if you guys want to turn there, I'll tell you why I picked that passage. Typically, here in Emmaus, if you guys aren't familiar with it, what we do is uh, one of our pastors will take a, a book of the Bible uh, our, our pastors pick a book of the Bible, and then one of our pastors will get up and preach section by section at a time. We just preach through an entire book of the Bible in its context. We're preaching uh, not in terms of, of, of uh, typically, some of us have grown up in, in church environments where we think about the Bible as if it's a collection of phrases or stories, and we think of the Bible in terms of verses. And, and what we want to do here at Emmaus is think of the Bible in terms of books, in terms of letters, in terms of one book. And so that's why we pick books of the Bible and preach through them section by section. And there's a difficulty in doing what, what I'm doing today, which is kind of like a musket shot sermon, just, just one sermon from one text. And the difficulty is that it's, it's hard to get the full force of a passage without also having the full momentum of the book behind it. But this particular passage is, is so full, it's so rich with theology that is uh, accessible, it's shelf level, we can get it and we can understand it without having a really, really extensive understanding background of the whole book. And so that's why I picked this passage because it's uniquely preachable. Uh, it's, it's uniquely accessible what the, the content that's, that's in there. So um, with that said, I'd like to read this passage and then, um, and then pray. So let's read together in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Paul says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father God, I I am incredibly grateful for the privilege of gathering here with your body, gathering here with brothers and sisters who have been purchased by your very blood, brought into this family. It is an unspeakable privilege for me to, to stand up here and speak on your behalf, to explain your word to your people and to apply it and bring it to bear on their lives. And so I ask that you would be faithful to do what you promised to do, to take your word and plant it in our hearts. God, I pray, would you speak through me that, uh, that, that, that seed sown in weakness may be raised in power, this morning, Lord, I'm, I'm aware of my own inadequacies and my own insufficiencies, so would you be gracious to speak despite me and my sins and my flaws? We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I've entitled this sermon, Reconciled to Reconcile. I think there's probably been a lot of sermons preached on this passage with that exact sermon title. Uh, because it comes from the text, so that's, that's appropriate. And I want to, to basically split the sermon up into two sections. I want to look at this concept of reconciliation on the micro level, on what it means for individuals, for persons, for you individually to be reconciled to God. And then I want to zoom out and look at reconciliation on the macro level. What is God doing with with reconciliation? Why does God reconcile individual people? How does that fit into the broader context of what God is doing? So with that said, let's let's just dig right in. Let's read verse 16 through 17 one more time to refresh our memory. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, first, we need to answer uh, the question, what does Paul mean when he says, according to the flesh? We no longer view anyone according to the flesh. In its most basic form, uh, Paul is is basically just saying, no longer according to to worldly standards. And and that, that implies a lot. For Christ... What Paul means is obvious. We no longer view Christ according to the flesh, even though we once regarded him according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. For Paul, he used to think that Christ was a shyster and a fraud. He he was a persecutor of the church because he thought that the church was basically a collection, this this sect off of uh, Judaism that was pursuing after a false messiah. And so according to the flesh, Christ is no Christ at all. He's he's a shyster and a fraud. But when we're talking about other people, we're talking about we no longer view anyone according to the flesh. There's there's several things we could say. According to the flesh uh, may refer to a number of things. According to the flesh, some people are more poised to enter into the kingdom of God than others. According to the flesh... Law-abiding, righteous Jews are more poised to enter into the kingdom of God than Gentiles. According to the flesh, uh, well-spoken, educated Greeks rather than Scythian barbarians. According to the flesh, 
men rather than women. According to the flesh, according to fleshly standards, some people are more poised to enter into the kingdom of God than others. According to the flesh, Paul's opponents in this letter are are surely blessed by God rather than Paul because they are polished in their rhetoric. They they are uh, well-spoken of. They have credentials. They have all the trappings of success. And Paul is always sporting shiners. He's, he's walking around with scars all over the place. He's poor. He's, he's literally having to go from church to church just to get money um, to, to survive. And so according to the flesh, Paul's not an apostle. According to the flesh, appearances mean everything. And so notice the first three words of our text this morning, Paul says, from now on, there's a time indication here. And, and, and Paul is saying that something has happened that, that, that makes the way that we view people fundamentally different. A change has occurred. Back then, we used to view people according to the flesh. But from now on, we, we regard them thus no longer. Back then, we used to regard Christ according to the flesh. But from now on, we regard him thus no longer. And so my question is, what has happened? What, what happened so that... Uh, uh, to, to change this perspective. What happened to Paul so that his, his perspective was that he once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but now he regards him thus no longer? And the answer is regeneration. In verse 17, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This term regeneration, it, there's a lot of different uh, terms in the Bible that that are used to describe this same reality, conversion, the new birth, born again, um, being brought from from spiritual death to spiritual life. We find that in Ephesians 2. There's a lot of different terms that are basically describing this event where somebody is lost and then they're found. They're they're, uh, unbelievers and now they're believers. It's regeneration. And uh, in regeneration, what happens is, is pretty drastic. So as you grow up, uh, as you grow up and you get older, your perspective on a lot of different topics just change because you learn inf- new information, your perspective changes because new information is brought forth and then you process it and you change your, change your opinion and you, you, know, you may think this about politics or economy at some point and then you learn new information and you change your mind later on. This is not what we're talking about here. In regeneration, God creates. He creates something new. Have you ever wondered, I think about this from time to time, have you ever wondered what it was like from the vantage point of the angelic host to see God speak the universe into existence? To to see him fling stars into the infinite void like splats of, splatters of paint on a, on a pitch black canvas or something like that. Have you ever wondered what it was like from the vantage point of the angelic host to see God speak the universe into existence ex nihilo, out of nothing? Well, guess what? That same ex nihilo, out of nothing creative power is present in every single conversion. Every single conversion, ex nihilo, out of nothing creative power, 
is present. This is why Paul, uh, earlier on in this very letter in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, talks about conversion like this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Paul is quoting from Genesis 1 here where we read about how God spoke the universe into existence and he explicitly says that this same God who spoke light into the darkness of the infinite void at creation speaks light into the darkness of the dead heart and every new creation. So that's what's happening in regeneration. Now the question is, how, how does this happen? What, what else is happening here in this act of regeneration? Can we say anything else about it? And in the context, we can at least say this. We can at least say that, that regeneration is, it happens directly in connection with our union with Christ. Paul says in, in, in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You're a new creation if you're in Christ. And notice this passage is also sandwiched between two other passages that talk about union with Christ. In verse 15, Uh, Verse 14 and 15, Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The all that Christ died for also died with Christ. That's union with Christ. And then in verse 21, Paul says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now we talk about this doctrine a lot here at Emmaus. If you guys have have spent any time here at all, you know that it's Pastor Ronnie's all-time favorite doctrine in the whole world. And it should be, right? This is a glorious doctrine. It's this doctrine that says that, that somehow beautifully and mysteriously and supernaturally, God unites me as a Christian to Christ so that when Christ died, I, in all of my sin, in all of my sinfulness, and all of my self-justifying efforts, and all of my pride and my lust and my selfishness, when Christ died, I died with him. When Christ was nailed to the cross, I, with all of my sin and my sinfulness, was nailed to the cross. When Christ was buried in the grave, I, with all of my sin and my sinfulness, was buried in the grave. And then, when Christ was resurrected, I, without my sin and my sinfulness was resurrected with Christ. This beautiful doctrine says that on, on account of my union with Christ, by virtue of my union with this God-man who lived the perfect life and sinless life and, and died the perfect death and is resurrected and is now seated at the right hand of God to receive favor and kindness from God for eternity. By virtue of my union with that Christ, I am separated from my sin by an extreme chasm. Between me and my sin lies some 2,000 years of human history, some 6,000 miles of land and sea, some 30 plus years of perfect God-man living, and also a resurrection and an eternity of God's gushing favor and kindness upon me. That separates me from my sin. The, the cavern, the, 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 this extreme chasm has been traversed by the resurrection. And so if you're a Christian, 
this is true for you. This is true for you. That eternal chasm has been traversed in the resurrection and your sin cannot cross that chasm. It cannot traverse that chasm. It can't come to you because it can't come to Christ and you're in Christ. You are in Christ if you're a Christian. If this change of perspective has happened so that you once viewed Christ according to the flesh, you once viewed Christ as an oddity, as a historic oddity, as, as one option among many different choices of religion. If you, if you once viewed Christ that way, but now you view him as this incredible treasure worthy of, of, of not living for yourself anymore, but living entirely for him. If that change of perspective has happened for you, it's because you've been united to Christ by faith. Now remember, the topic of our text is reconciliation. So the question is, what does all of this new creation, union with Christ, this status, what does this mean for our relationship with a perfect and righteous God? As, as, as union with Christ happens, as regeneration happens, a legal verdict is taking place, which fundamentally changes our position with Christ. That's what's happening. It's not just union with Christ. It's not just regeneration. Something is happening. It's a legal transaction. It's a legal verdict before a righteous judge. Something is happening legally. In verse 25, or I'm sorry, verse 21 describes that for us. 2 Corinthians 5:21 is arguably the most theologically full single verse in the Bible to describe the gospel. If anyone is going to ask me, what's the one verse you're going to go to to describe the gospel? It's always going to be 2 Corinthians 5.21. So let's read this together. Let's revel in this together. Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, Paul says, Christ God made Christ to be sin. Why does he say for our sake? Why would it benefit us for Christ to be made sin? We should be asking these kinds of questions as we're reading the Bible to help us understand what's being written there. Why does Paul's sake it's to our benefit that Christ is to be made sin? And the answer is we are sin. We are the embodiment of sin. Apart from Christ, we're the embodiment of sin. The only way that we could actually benefit from any sort of transaction with God is for God to be made the embodiment of sin. Do you get that, church? The only way that you're going to benefit from any sort of exchange with God is for God to be made the embodiment of sin. That's how wretched we were. That's how dreadful our situation actually was. One songwriter talks about this verse like this. He says, I have been thinking hard about us trading places. Maybe I could wear your beauty if you put on my shame. Jesus, I've been trying so hard to look like you that I almost missed the worst of what I put you through. You didn't die for sins, you died covered in them. A prideful lying thief gasping out my final breath. And then he says this, 
in that one moment, you looked just like me. So your father left you and you died completely alone. You could put it like this. The reason, the reason that Jesus endured the full wrath of God on the cross is because when he was on the cross, he looked like you. God had wrath for Christ on the cross because when he was on the cross, he looked like you and your sinful condition. And by the way, if you're a Christian, this is your story. Even if you don't remember a time in which you viewed Christ according to the flesh. Some of us, some of us have been brought up in the church and, and I, I don't even know exactly when I was converted. It was sometime when I was, when I was younger. And so it, it's, it, it can be hard for us to imagine that this is true because we don't remember a time. We don't have this uh, crazy testimony where we were drug dealers and murderers or something like that, and then we're converted. Some of us, some of us had the blessing of growing up in a, in a Christian home, and we don't remember a time in which we hated God. But the fact is, this is true. You and your sinful condition, apart from Christ, are rightfully the recipient of God's wrath, because you and your sinful condition, apart from Christ, are an enemy of God. Also remember that God is under absolutely no obligation to do anything about this. He's under no obligation to pursue reconciliation with you. Guys, we have to get this. We have to get this because the gospel will not be sweet. It won't be as powerful as it actually is in our minds if we don't understand that reconciliation did not have to happen. It didn't have to, but it did. For our sake, it did. In the name of reconciliation, God sent Christ not only to bear the wrath that our sin earned, but also to earn righteousness for us to bear. Do you get that? God sent Christ not only to bear the wrath that our sin earned, but also to earn a righteousness that he deserves for us to bear. We get to bear his righteousness. He gets to bear our sin. That's the great exchange. This is the gospel. Now note, when, when we say we receive the righteousness of God. This isn't saying that we become as righteous as God. It's not saying that. God has a very unique righteousness. It's saying we become righteous according to God. It's saying we have a new standing before God where once we were wretched and vile and seen as enemies of God, and now we have righteousness. We have a righteousness, a goodness that has been imputed to us. It's an alien righteousness. It's an alien standing before God. We didn't earn it on our own. Christ earned it on our behalf and he imputed it to us. And so this is how reconciliation happens. Reconciliation happens with God seeking reconciliation, with God pursuing us. God writes himself into the story to reconcile himself to his rebellious characters. God steps down into creation to reconcile himself to his own sinful creatures. God takes off his robes of righteousness and he drapes them on us. This is how reconciliation happens. And see, the initiative is completely one-sided. 
God seeks reconciliation with us. In verse 18, he says, All this, namely being made a new creation, is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself to us. In Romans 5, we're going to see this next week when Austin preaches, but there is an extreme contrast between us and God when this reconciliation happens. While we, on the one hand, are enemies, while we are breathing out venom and hatred towards God, while we are shouting out, I don't want you, while we are doing that, he is pursuing reconciliation with us. While we are shouting, we don't want you, he says, I want you. And he pursues reconciliation with us. We have to get this contract, contrast because we're, we're not familiar with this kind of reconciliation on earth. It, it, it doesn't exist between sinful creatures. When reconciliation is necessary on earth, it's because both parties are always sinful. <laughs> Even if one party is mostly sinful, even if one party is mostly to blame, there's always sin involved. And this is just an example. I've been married for four years, and in principle, in principle, I'm committed to pursue reconciliation with my wife on the tail end of any fight, even if I have nothing to apologize for. In principle, I'm committed to pursuing reconciliation even if I have nothing to apologize for. But in four years of marriage, there's, been, there's, there's yet to be one occasion in which I've had to pursue reconciliation with, with my wife without having to apologize for something. There's always something for me to apologize for. Even in the minority of those, of those situations where Shannon is mostly to blame for a fight. <laughs> and it, that is the minority, I always have something to apologize for because I'm sinful. But this kind of reconciliation that we're describing here in 2 Corinthians is altogether different. It's altogether different. God is the only completely and perfectly innocent party to ever seek reconciliation. And he does so, he does it with those who have made themselves his enemies without any provocation on his part. He did nothing to make his enemies his enemies. And yet, yet, he pursues reconciliation with us. The kindness of our God to even want reconciliation with us, church, should blow our minds. Now, all this is true for you. This is what reconciliation looks like on an on a individual level. If you are a Christian... If you are in Christ, this is true for you. And the question is, for what? So now I want to I zoom out. We've looked at what it looks like on the individual level. Now I want to zoom out and see what God is doing in history. What, what, what does God intend for those with whom he has been reconciled, and how does that fit into his sovereign purposes? Read with me in verses 18 and 19. Paul says, All this again, being made a new creation, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In other words, God has made us a new creation because he has a program. 
He has a program to reconcile himself to the world, and he's doing it through us. That's why you've been reconciled to God. It's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. He's reconciled himself to you so that you can go out and bear this message of reconciliation. This is what Paul's talking about in verse 15 when he says, and he died for all that those who might no longer, that those who, uh, who live might no, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died for us who lived so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but live for him. And that looks like being reconcilers. That looks like taking this message of reconciliation to the world. What does this look like exactly? Verse 20, Paul says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're agents of reconciliation when we go out into the world and we speak on behalf of God. Now, if we really think about this, this should make us a little uneasy. That what we're talking about here is speaking for God. We are speaking for God. I'm nervous to speak for my wife on on certain topics. And this text is telling us that we go out and we speak on behalf of God. Now, it should make us a little uneasy, but it also should comfort us because you may not have known this, but this verse solves a serious theological problem. Let me, let me explain this to you. In, in, in John chapter 10, we're going to preach through uh, the gospel of John after, after we've, uh, we've finished with this series, and I'm really excited for that. But in John chapter 10, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he's describing his unique love for his sheep, and he says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for my sheep. And then he says this, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So he's talking with the Pharisees, And he's saying, I love my sheep. And the sheep that would have been immediately on his mind and on the mind of his hearers would have been the sheep who were actually following Jesus. And they were comprised of Jews. His following was comprised of Jews. And then he says, I have other sheep, meaning the Gentiles, that are not of this fold. And I have to go call them in too. And they're going to come in because they're going to hear my voice. They're going to recognize my voice and they're going to come into the fold. That's what Jesus is saying. And so the question is, when did Jesus do this? When did Jesus go out to the Gentiles and and, and initiate this this Gentile-wide invitation to his sheep, to his lost sheep of the Gentiles and say, come in, come into the fold, come in and be part of this fold with the Jews so you have one flock, Jews and Gentiles under one shepherd, When did Jesus do this? And the answer is, he didn't. Not during his earthly ministry. During his earthly ministry, Jesus dealt almost exclusively with the Jews. And then he died, was resurrected, and ascended up into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God. He's in heaven right now. So the question is, how then are they going to be brought in? How are the Gentile sheep going to be brought into the fold of Christ? 
If Jesus is in heaven and he said they're going to come in because they're going to hear my voice, well, how are, how are the Gentiles going to hear the voice of Jesus if he's in heaven? And the answer is they're going to hear the voice of their good shepherd when we speak on behalf of him. That is what's happening in evangelism. The good shepherds, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and we know this even from, from experience, don't we? I mean, when you think about how you were saved, how you were converted, how, how uh, you were brought from death to life, it's always because somebody was preaching the gospel to you. Now, it could be just the gospel writers themselves when you're reading or a book or something like that, but more than, more than often, it's going to be a person that's actually proclaiming the gospel to you. And the beautiful thing that this text is showing us is that when you heard that person, when you heard that person, whoever that person was, extend this gospel invitation for you to be reconciled to God, you were actually hearing the voice of your good shepherd. You're hearing the voice of your good shepherd calling you in. So this puts a whole new spin on evangelism because it means when you go to your friends and your family, the non-believers in your life, when you go to them and they hear your voice as you're saying, be reconciled to God. You need reconciliation with, with God. He, he made him who knew no sin become sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. When you extend that invitation to your friends and they hear your voice and hearing your voice, they are hearing the voice of God. They are hearing the voice of God extend this invitation. And just as an aside, brothers and sisters, this is one of the beautiful things about raising children in a godly home. Can you think of anything sweeter than the reality for someone to grow up from infanthood, grow up with the constant, persistent voice of their good shepherd in their ear? That's what's happening, parents, when you raise your kids in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, when you point them to Jesus, as you're regularly pointing them to Jesus, they are hearing the voice of their good shepherd in their ear. That's what's happening. So give them that gift. Give them the gift of being weaned on the voice of their good shepherd. Give them that gift. And so, again, just to recap, this reconciliation on the individual level, we've talked about that. And then on the macro level, what God is doing, he, he has a plan. He has a global plan to reconcile himself to the world. He has a global plan to, to, to bring in his lost sheep to have one massive fold uh, uh, comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And he's planning on doing that through your efforts to go and speak on his behalf to go and be reconcilers on his behalf. In Revelation chapter 5, I'm just, I'm just going to read this here. John says this, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord, each holding a harp and, a golden, and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
That is what a massive flock comprised of Jews and Gentiles look like. And that's going to happen largely through our efforts. That's what we're doing when we go and we speak on behalf of God and extend the invitation for people to be reconciled to God. We are, we are, we are spreading the voice of the good shepherd throughout all the earth. So in light of all that's been said this morning, how should we respond? What does this text mean for us as we leave this gathering? And I'd like to leave you with three concluding charges. And the first is this. The first is to any unbelievers who may be here in the room. I don't want to be presumptuous and just assume that everybody here is, is a Christian. So if there are any unbelievers in the room, the charge is very, very simple. I'm sure you probably have guessed it. It's this. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Make no mistake, the wrath that Jesus endured on the cross, the wrath that Jesus endured on the cross is what you have awaiting you for an eternity if you will not just lay down your arms and be reconciled to God. And let me tell you, that cup of wrath will take you an eternity to drink down to the dregs. So let Jesus do it for you. That is the invitation. Be reconciled to God. So hear me, unbeliever. Hear me as an ambassador of God, speaking on behalf of God. Be reconciled to God. And if these glorious realities are warming your heart and you feel compelled to no longer live for yourself but live for Christ, listen, that's the voice of your good shepherd ringing in your ear. Listen to him. Follow his voice back into the fold. Come, come to him. Come to him with your sin so that Christ may take it upon himself and give to you instead his righteousness. Come to him as marred and cracked vessels of creation so he can make you new. So come and be reconciled to God. The second charge is to believers. And it's this. Preach the gospel boldly and preach the gospel soberly. Go to those who are lost in the enmity with God and tell them how they can be reconciled to God. Go to those who are lost and tell them that they are, in fact, at enmity with God and they need to be reconciled to God. Right? This is important because we need to understand as as we go and we share this gospel with people, we're going to encounter two different types of people. Some people that we share the gospel with are going to resist this message of reconciliation with God because they don't think it's possible. They, they don't think it's possible. They believe that they are so offensive and vile that God would never willingly reconcile himself to them. There's going to be some people who really think that. And to them, we have to assure them that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. And the proof is in the resurrection. You cannot get a better proof than that. So we have to remind them that if they would find themselves in Christ, they would find themselves in righteousness with their sin not being swept away and ignored, right? Those tender conscience people that we encounter are right to feel like their sin is too big of a deal to be ignored. And to them, we have to assure them that their sin isn't ignored in Christ. It's dealt with definitively. So that's what we have to share with them. But there's going to be other people that we share the gospel with that are going to resist this message of reconciliation with God because they don't think they need it. 
And they don't think they need reconciliation with God because they don't believe they're actually at enmity with him. They don't believe that there's any hostility between them and God. There's going to be some people who really think that. And listen, this is where we really need to view things no longer according to the flesh. Because if we're honest, we may agree. We may agree that it looks like there's no enmity between the person we're talking to and between God. In fact, they may even say things like, I'm open-minded. I'm not opposed to God. I don't need reconciliation with God. There's no enmity with him. I don't hate him. I'm, 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 I'm open to belief in God. I'm open to the prospect of, of believing and having faith in God. But the question is, which God? Because you better believe that the person who is not opposed to a God is going to be opposed to the triune God of Scripture when you flip the Bible open to the Old Testament and you start talking about 600 rules and regulations that are superimposing and micromanaging. When you flip open to, to uh, 1 Samuel 15 and you talk about God's charge for the Israelites to slaughter an entire people group with when men, women, and children, or when you flip the Bible open and you start naming the sins that God condemns and they just so happen to be the sins that the person you're talking to treasures, when you start getting Bible-specific, you will see opposition start to flare up. It's going to happen. So, so uh, talk to the person who's the most open-minded seeker, who's not opposed to God, and when you start getting Bible-specific, you'll see the opposition flare up. And that opposition is enmity with God. So we need to preach the gospel boldly, and part of that is going to include explaining how somebody actually is at enmity with God, even if they don't think that they are. And so preach the gospel boldly, but also preach the gospel soberly. Because listen, this title of ambassador, this title of ambassador that we have been given carries with it a lot of authority, but it also carries with it a lot of accountability. Right? So on the one hand, don't you dare refuse to preach the gospel when God has commissioned you to do that. If God has commissioned you to be his ambassador and speak on behalf of Christ and, and issue this, this invitation of reconciliation, don't you dare neglect to do that. He has commissioned you to do no less than that. But he's also commissioned you to do no more than that. So on the other hand, don't you dare speak on behalf of your king and misrepresent him. Don't you dare speak on behalf of your king and use your title as an ambassador to, to uh, bring forth your own agendas. You should be terrified to do that. So the idea here is transparency. It's not presumptuous for us to preach on behalf of God the message of reconciliation. It is presumptuous for us to speak on behalf of God the message of our own agendas. And so the idea is transparency. When we bring this message of reconciliation, when we preach and we stand in the place of God, the people who listen to us ought to be able to look straight through us. And when they look straight through us, they ought to not see our own agendas, our own selfish ambitions, our own suspect motives. They ought to look straight through us and see God and his message of reconciliation. So that's what we want. We want to preach the gospel boldly, and we want to preach the gospel soberly. And the last charge 
is this. Brothers and sisters, preach the gospel impartially and no longer according to the flesh. So let me ask you this question. Is there any person or kind of person that you are drawn away from? Is it a social group? Is it an income level? Is it an ethnicity? Is is there any person or kind of person that you don't want to share the gospel with because you don't want to talk to them? Is that not partiality? Is that not viewing people according to the flesh? Brothers and sisters, we have to search our own motives here. We have to search our own motives. When you walk into a store where there are maybe lower income families shopping there, what is your first thought? How do you view them? When you see Black Lives Matter advocates, what is your first thought? How do you view them? When you see a police officer, what's your first thought? When you see someone on social media post pro or anti blank, whatever it is, whatever, whatever you're opposed to, how do you view that person? Are you viewing them according to the flesh or are you viewing them as somebody who has been made a new creation? Somebody who views them as either an object of God's wrath or an object of God's mercy. And if they're an object of God's wrath, are you viewing them as somebody who is a potential person to hear this message of reconciliation that you have and they need? Are we viewing people according to the flesh? This is incredibly important, brothers and sisters, because right now our world aches for reconciliation. They ache for reconciliation. And what they don't know is that their enmity with one another is downstream from their enmity with God. And meaningful reconciliation with people, with other people, is impossible without reconciliation with God. That's what they need to know. And listen, we will prove that that is so when we can do the miraculous thing and no longer view people according to the flesh. If we can look at people and not view them according to the flesh, not conform to the patterns of this world, but actually look at them the way that God looks at them, that is miraculous. And that will prove that that reconciliation with God is the fountainhead of all reconciliation with other people. So show them. Show them that reconciliation with the God is, is the beginning of all impartiality by being impartial with your offer of reconciliation with God. Let me repeat that. Show that reconciliation with God is the beginning of all impartiality by being impartial in your offer of reconciliation with God. We're gonna conclude our time this morning in the word with with taking communion. And we do this every week. We do this every week because we really believe that we have to be regularly reminded of the gospel. Not just in what we read, not just in what we sing, not just in what we hear, but also what we see. Right? Communion is a dramatization of the gospel. When we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, 
We take the bread reminding ourselves of, of the broken body of Jesus and we dip it in the cup reminding ourselves of the shed blood of Jesus. That's a dramatization of the gospel. We are seeing the gospel reenacted. And so because of that, this meal is for believers only. If you're not a, if you're not a believer, do not take, partake of this meal. Don't do it. It's, it's, it's for those who have been reconciled to God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you haven't been reconciled to God, either because you refuse to be or because you refuse to think you need to be, it doesn't matter. If you haven't been reconciled to God, don't take of this meal. But if you have, if you're a believer, if you've been reconciled to God, we invite you to, to come and, and partake of this meal um, with us. And as you take it, as you take it, church, I invite you to look around and take in your surroundings. Look around at all of these ex nihilo miracles. Look around and take in the reality that these people that we are, we are taking communion with have all, just like us, been reconciled to God because God has pursued reconciliation with us. So take in the corporate reality that, that what we experience here in enjoying this meal together is actually just a microcosm of what God is going to do when he, when he is finished reconciling himself to the world. This is just a taste. We're going to be experiencing this for eternity, so don't shut off from, from what we're about to do. Marvel at what God has done to reconcile himself to sinful rebels. And the way that we do that here at Emmaus is that this half of the room and the front half of the center aisle is going gonna, is gonna to go through and take communion here and come down this aisle. And then the back, the back center aisle, am I, am I messing this up? Is this right? And then the back center aisle over here and this side is going to go this way, th- th- this aisle, and then go back down through this aisle. So this aisle is how everybody is going to exit, okay? Everybody get that? <laughs> All right, you can just follow, follow the person in front of you. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the sweet promises therein. The fact that we, while we were enemies, while we were breathing out venom and hatred, you pursued us in reconciliation. God, may this truth propel us to impartially, no longer according to the flesh, boldly and soberly preach the gospel to those around us. God, we ask that you would stir us up as we leave this place to to go and be your voice, to go and be the voice of the good shepherd as he's calling in lost sheep. And would we recognize how beautiful a reality that is, that when people are, are, are saved, when they, when they believe and accept the gospel message that we bring forth, what's happening is that lost sheep are coming in, that dead souls are being brought to life, and that old creations are passing away and new creations are being made. And so would you stir us up to, to go and do that faithfully? And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.